Amnia Clark, host and producer of Dreams of Black Wall Street. Be sure to rate, review, and subscribe to this podcast on iTunes or on your favorite podcast platform. Especially if you want to help us get the word out about this history, these stories, and the work we're doing. Thank you so much. by the Tuskegee Institute singers in 1914. Quite literally, the song depicts the biblical scene of Moses in Exodus leading his people to freedom. It is also believed to be a coded song that was used for the Underground Railroad, particularly by Harriet Tubman, who was also called the Moses of her people. Now, according to the American Social History Project by the City University of New York, quote, this song was originally published as Oh, Let My People Go, the song of the contrabands. Though it is generally thought of as a spiritual, it was first recorded as sheet music after having been heard as a rallying cry for the ex-slaves at Fort Monroe in Virginia. The original sheet music, available at the Library of Congress website, has the year 1861 handwritten on the front and on the fifth page informs that this song has been sung for about nine years by the slaves of Virginia, end quote. Black Wall Street. There is a cruel irony in the fact that the moniker assigned to several once thriving, prosperous, predominantly African-American communities of the early 20th century is derived from a place that connotes wealth and high social status, the location of the New York Stock Exchange, and more broadly, the center of American finance. 
The irony lies in the fact that the financial hub that would become Wall Street was formed mere feet away and on the same street as New York City's very first government-backed, bustling slave market. As previously mentioned, this season we're going to be highlighting several Black settlements and communities in what will become New York City. But first, we're going to illuminate just how foundational people of African descent were to the birth and development of the city. During the early 18th century, owners of the enslaved in the lower part of Manhattan would often hire their slaves out by sending them to look for work. Enslaved people would be walking the streets at a time when fears of slave uprisings were high. To control the movement of black bodies, fearful whites demanded the establishment of a market where enslaved individuals could be hired, bought, and sold. On December 13, 1711, the city council passed a law stating, quote, that all Negro and Indian slaves that are let out to hire be hired at the market house at the Wall Street Slip, end quote. This area, located on the corner of Pearl and Wall Street near the East River, came to be known as the Meal Market because grains were also sold there. Not only was it the city's first slave market, it eventually became one of the most profitable slave markets in the nation, second only to Charleston, South Carolina. And not only were the origins of what we know today as Wall Street a slave auction block, but enslaved Africans were among those who helped build it. According to the New York City Parks Department, quote, slavery was introduced to Manhattan in 1626. By the mid 18th century, approximately one in five people living in New York City was enslaved and almost half of Manhattan households included at least one slave. Although New York State abolished slavery in 1827, complete abolition came only in 1841 when the state of New York abolished the right of non-residents to have slaves in the state for up to nine months. However, the use of slave labor elsewhere for the production of raw materials such as sugar and cotton was essential to the economy of New York both before and after the Civil War. Slaves also cleared forest land for the construction of Broadway and were among the workers that built the wall that Wall Street is named for and helped build the first Trinity Church. Within months of the market's construction, New York's first slave uprising occurred a few blocks away on Maiden Lane, led by enslaved people from the Coromanti and Pawpaw peoples of Ghana. End quote. Ultimately, slave trading became a central component of the city's economy. The founding document of what would become the New York Stock Exchange decades later was created just a few blocks away from the meal market. The Buttonwood Agreement was an agreement between two dozen merchants who formed a club of sorts and agreed to trade exclusively with one another, ensuring that they could trust one another, essentially getting rid of the outside agents and auctioneers. It aimed to regulate trading securities and standardize commission compensation, including many financial deals surrounding the slave trade. The agreement was signed on May 17, 1792 at 68 Wall Street, which was the location of a sycamore tree at the time. At that point, however, Meal Market was no longer in existence. Still, this was not the beginning of the Black experience in New York. In fact, the presence of people of African descent in New York predates what was once the Dutch settlement, New Amsterdam, of which Manhattan was a part of, as well as the establishment of the first Dutch colony in North America, New Netherland, of which New York State was once a part of. 
Jan, or Juan Rodriguez, depending on the source, was the first non-native settler in New York City and the first New Yorker of African descent. Born to an African mother and a Portuguese father, Rodriguez was raised in the Spanish settlement of Santo Domingo in the Dominican Republic. Historical accounts suggest that he was hired by the Dutch to serve as a translator during a voyage to the Native American island of what would become Manhattan. After arriving in 1613, Juan learned the language of and married into a Native American family. Eventually, he established and ran a successful trading post. The lower Manhattan areas designated as Greenwich Village, Chinatown, Little Italy, and Soho were once home to the very first community of emancipated Blacks in the country, known as the Land of the Blacks, as it was referred to in official Dutch documents. In the 1640s, these spaces were comprised of farmland near what was once the Freshwater Pond, also known as Collect Pond, in order to create a buffer zone between New Netherland and areas occupied by Algonquin-speaking Native American tribes, which the colony was at war with, colonial leaders distributed land grants to former enslaved Africans. Several of them were among the first 11 enslaved Africans brought to the colony by the Dutch West India Company in 1626. Over time, more freed Blacks joined the settlement, and by the Civil War, the land was the center of the Five Points, an interracial neighborhood consisting of free Blacks, as well as Irish residents. But over time, the Five Points neighborhood became controversial in the eyes of those who lived outside of it. Infamous for gambling houses, prostitution, dance halls, and bars, most with a mixed-race clientele, the Five Points was a disgrace to the outside white community who scoffed at its interracial dynamics. Middle-class Blacks in the city found the area to be an embarrassment to the race. Still, the Five Points neighborhood holds a rich place in New York City history. For a moment in time, it was a rare example of harmony between people of African descent and the Irish during a volatile time in antebellum New York. It also reflected the intersection of poverty and race in the city through the lens of a previously all-Black neighborhood that became integrated and less Black as Irish immigrants moved in. But the Five Points was not reflective of the entire Black experience in antebellum New York. By now, it should be clear that people of African descent have had a presence in what would become New York for an even longer period of time than its existence. People of African descent, both free and enslaved, have been an integral part of the growth, development, and evolution of New York, first as a Dutch colony, then as an English colony, and finally as a U.S. state, including the more than two centuries during which slavery existed. As author Leslie Harris writes in her book, In the Shadow of Slavery, African Americans in New York, 1626 to 1863, quote, Free Blacks moved into working-class neighborhoods and mingled in the walking city with white workers and elites. They established mutual relief societies and built churches and schools. They participated in electoral politics and political rioting against slave owners and slave catchers. As they went about their labors in the city, Black workers sang their wares to attract customers, just as white workers did. And during leisure hours, working-class Blacks and whites mingled in the streets, dance halls, and grog shops of New York, end quote. In reality, the Black experience in antebellum New York was contingent upon multiple factors, including race and class. Now we'll hear from Leslie Harris, who will further expound upon this for us.
So my name is Leslie Harris. I'm a professor of history and African-American studies at Northwestern University. And my book is In the Shadow of Slavery, African-Americans in New York City, 1626 to 1863. So your book was great, by the way. In the introduction, you write that the concentration of Blacks in Harlem was the continuation of a migratory pattern in which Blacks were forced northward up the island over two and a half centuries. It seems pretty complicated on its face, but for Black folks living in New York, you kind of understand. For people who are not in New York, can you kind of explain what you mean by that? Sure. So what I mean when I say that Black people were forced up the island to Harlem, where we now think of as the site of the Black community in New York City, We're talking about a group of people who were brought, the enslaved people who were brought here to work in the first European settlement by the Dutch. When part of that group gained freedom, half freedom, which we'll talk about in a minute, when they gained half freedom, they were given land outside of the Dutch settlement. And so that's the beginning of that movement, a a, a separation, where they were positioned to help protect the European settlement from Native American people. Now, when we move into the 18th and the 19th century, when there's more settlement, both of Europeans and of African-Americans, there is a time where Blacks and whites are mixed in these neighborhoods. You know, it's more a mixture based on, if you're looking at neighborhood by neighborhood, people are mixed according to class. And then within that, you might have some racial distinctiveness. So for example, one of my colleagues, Shane White, says that there's a vertical segregation in which Blacks live in the lower floors of buildings in the 19th century as whites are living in the upper floors. And the upper floors are healthier. They're not as damp. They're not as cold, all of these things. But as the city develops, and there are a couple of turning points in terms of Black and white mixed neighborhoods, as the city develops, and it grows northward, Blacks are also moved northward. Sometimes they move because it's easier to own property northward. So Seneca Village, which is founded as slavery ends in New York in the 1820s, that's a location really at that time far outside of New York City. It's in present day Central Park. And the reason Blacks settle there is because they can, someone is willing to sell them property, they can own land, they eventually create churches, the AME Zion Church is there. Even when whites move in, and there's, you know, mostly Irish, but a a few other European groups, there's, there's a kind of peace there, you know, there's not a lot of difficulty there, there's not a lot of interracial tension. Of course, it is destroyed, that neighborhood is destroyed in the 1850s to make way for Central Park. So that's a very obvious example where those people then have to find a new place to live. If we look at the Civil War era, my book ends in 1863 with the New York City draft riots. And that's another movement where the days of violence, literal lynching of particularly Black men, but of Black people in the streets, the burning of institutions owned by Black people, That leads to a number of people fleeing the city. Some go to Brooklyn, but some, you know, have make their way to other places. A colored orphan asylum, which is run by whites, but is of poor black children, that moves far north as well. So these patterns continue. And sometimes they're sparked by violence. Sometimes they're sparked by government, like eminent domain, as happens with the Central Park settlement. Sometimes it's, you know, New York real estate. It's prices go up and people can't afford to stay. There are a lot of reasons why, but there is a 
consistent move northward. Some of it matches the movement of whites northward, but there can be, and there, there's an increasing segregation as blacks move northward is what I would say. And so by the time you get to the 1920s, Harlem is seen as a black neighborhood, although of course there are other groups who live there as well. There are still people living sort of in the hell, today's Hell's Kitchen, it probably was called Hell's Kitchen then in that neighborhood. There's still also things like jazz clubs in the 20s, 30s, 40s, 50s in terms of the streets. But eventually, certainly by the 60s and 70s, people think of the locus of Black community as Harlem. And we're experiencing that, na- that a change again now. Will Harlem, which from the 20s has been this neighborhood that has fostered Black community, Black businesses, Black culture, we know that now it is experiencing gentrification. Prices are going up. More non-Black people are moving in. And there's a question of what will happen to that rich culture that was nurtured there for several, for many decades. You have neighborhoods in Brooklyn, Bed-Stuy in Brooklyn, same thing. And so New York really has, there's some questions about what New York will look like in another few days in terms of the population. The Black population in general in New York is decreasing. So now we're talking about not just moving north, but moving out. And this will be something to keep track of. Yeah, the New York Times recently did an article about the exodus of Black folks out of New York. That's a whole nother podcast episode for another day. Glad to hear it. So if you don't mind, would you just briefly describe the first non-Native American or Indigenous settler on Manhattan, Juan Rodriguez? He was a free man, you write, of African and possibly Afro-European descent, who was basically dropped off on the island from a Dutch vessel in 1613. Is that correct? Yes, and we've learned more about Juan, Juan or Jan Rodriguez since I wrote the book. Apparently, he was born in Santo Domingo, what we think of as today's Dominican Republic, to a Portuguese sailor and an African mother. I don't know more about her, and you know, I'm assuming she was enslaved. And he grew up there, and he was a sailor, and he became part of this group of people that I think we could call Atlantic Creoles after the historian Ira Berlin. These are people who may have been enslaved at some point, but also gained freedom. They speak multiple languages. They have a knowledge of European ways. They're also fluid culturally. It's this moment in the 17th century where things are not set in stone in terms of who Black people can be, who Native people can be, and who Europeans can be. So there's more mixture, there's more, it's a funny word to say, but there's a little bit more opportunity than will be true later. And so he is dropped off on this island, whether or not this is voluntary, or there was some ship aboard crisis, but he marries into the Lenape people on that island and becomes a trader of goods. And he, as far as we know, he lives there and has a family. We don't know much more about him after he moves into that island. We have a few records of a European merchant complaining that he's there and he's selling things and should he be here? But as far as we know, he he lives there. So he is the first non-native, non-native person on the island as far as we can tell. And the first non-native person on the island happens to be of African descent. Absolutely. Absolutely. Which is pretty wild. So what do we know about the first 11 enslaved persons who were brought to New York by the Dutch West India Company in 1626? 
So these 11 are, they're all men, first of all. And one of the ways we can learn something about them is by their names. They have a mix of European names, place names, Congo, Paul D'Angola, Simon Congo. These are names that may indicate where they originated in West Africa. We have others who have place names that seem to indicate what happened to them after they arrived. So there's Jan from Fort Orange, which is Fort Orange, New York, we think, or Big Manual and Little Manual, who are just given names perhaps to distinguish them from each other among this 11. A couple of them have the names of, last names of Portuguese, perhaps, or Spanish, Reyes, Minuet, these kinds of names. So again, these are people that we think are part of this Atlantic Creole group. Again, this generation where they are enslaved, but they have knowledge of European ways. And the laws, again, the laws about slavery are either non-existent, they're not slave codes in the way that we think of, say, particularly for the 19th century South, which is most of our reference points in the U.S. But the in these colonies, whites are really reliant on these enslaved people for to build a colony, quite literally, they arrived to build the infrastructure. The earliest European migrants were, as far as I know, literally living in trenches in the ground before these Europeans come to assist them with building actual buildings and roads and things like that. They are also meant to be military protection. They are part of the forces that are supposed to protect whites from Native American people. We should also note that they are owned by the colony. So these are not people who are owned by individual enslavers. They are owned by the Dutch West India Company. So they really are owned by a company to set up and solidify this colony, this which is a commercial enterprise. But it's still a very small settlement. And given their names, their small numbers, it's likely that they already spoke European languages. If they came from Congo and Angola, they may have already had experience with Catholicism because those regions in terms of their relationships with the Portuguese through the slave trade and other trades, some of the rulers had converted to Catholicism and had even visited Portugal. So these are people who may well have, even as enslaved people, understood how the world worked. And we can see that by what they do after they land. One of the things that happens is they sometimes take white people to court. They are allowed to labor and to sometimes be paid for their labor, like a, an individual white person might hire them out from the company to do work for them. And if that happens, often they are paid for that. And a couple of times, people take that person to court for not having paid them. They also sometimes go to court. I think with one of them, someone stole their cow, which indicates that they owned something. And so they took that person to court. But the most important way that we know that they have some cultural capital, if you will, is that they argue for their own freedom. In 1644, they say to a colonist who want them to fight for them and against the Native Americans, they use that as a moment to strategically ask for their freedom. We will fight for you, but we need something in return. And the Dutch respond by giving them half freedom, giving them plots of land just outside of the Dutch settlement so that they form a kind of a military early warning, if you will, a protection line there. They can grow their own food. They can live there with their families. By this time, the Dutch have brought some women for the comfort of the company's men, as they say. And these men and women, some of them have formed families. So they are technically free 
Their children, however, are not free and are subject to being still enslaved by the company. And they also, in addition to agreeing to serve in the military for the colony, they also have to pay a certain amount of their agricultural goods. If they grow wheat or have pigs or whatever, there's a certain tax, if you will, that they pay yearly. And that's both to, I think it's to make sure that they remain independent. You know, there's a lot of that with granting freedom to formerly enslaved people, prove that you are free. But of course, it also contributes to what the whites in the colony can use for their own sustenance. A little bit of a foreshadowing to the differences you outline in your book between slavery under Dutch rule and British rule. You also mentioned in your book how the Dutch sort of justified enslaving African people, people of African descent, and one of the ways they did that was their religion, right? So could you just briefly explain how enslaved people in New Amsterdam, how they were distinguished between white people and how Christianity was used to sort of justify slavery. Yeah, this is a very complex set of arguments that Christians have during this time, because Christianity is founded on this idea of free will, that in order to really be without sin, you have to have the free will to not sin, right? To be in control of your own soul. And yet, of course, enslaved people have to obey their enslavers. At the same time, the Pope, two centuries before, had said that Europeans, particularly the Portuguese, should go to Africa to bring these people to Christianity. This is how we end up with Catholics in Congo and Angola and those places. So Catholicism in particular, but Christianity in general, has a kind of naughty problem there. We sometimes think that, they sometimes thought that If someone really became Christian, that they should be free in order to pursue Christianity, to pursue the state of their soul. But the Dutch eventually began arguing that they did not want these enslaved people to convert to Christianity because they thought they were doing it only to gain freedom. And so rather than welcoming them into the church, they say, we're not going to welcome you into the church as much. You still do have in this 17th century generation, a number of enslaved people who marry in the church. They have God parents, they are baptized in the church and these things. But the Europeans really have a problem, a logical problem in how they claim you can be a good Christian if you are under the thumb of someone who can force you to do things that are not in line with Christianity. And that is kind of a problem, it continues to be a problem. Ultimately, Europeans into the 18th and the 19th century, the way they fix that problem is to say, well, people of African descent are, in a sense, without us controlling them, they will just be immoral. And they make that argument in all kinds of ways that you know they're oversexed, they are prone to theft, And so only by continuing to enslave them can we ensure that they will actually remain in good standing with Christianity. Of course, there are also a number of enslavers who don't care if their people are Christian. They don't bother to try to use Christianity to make sure that they're Christian. Yeah, and, and that would have implications, as you mentioned, for many, many, many years to come in terms of how slavery continues to be justified and how also Black people in general are treated. So you explain that there are four periods of 
Black community political activism. All of this is prior to abolition, right? This is during the antebellum period in New York, which is wild when <laughs> you think about it, right? Okay. So, but anyway, you, you explain there's four periods of Black community political activism and class consciousness. Period of slavery from 1626 to 1785, the growth of the anti-slavery sentiment and gradual emancipation from 1785 to 1827, the period of radical abolitionism from 1830 through the Civil War, and then the period of delusionment between 1840 and the Civil War draft riots. So could you, as briefly as you can, <laughs> summarize kind of what that looks like and just explain like how wild it was for there to even be an anti-slavery movement in antebellum New York at that time. Sure. So when I think about those different time periods of Black political activism, which is sometimes in alignment with whites and sometimes not. So the earliest Black political activism, even the first 11 who go to court and say, we should be free, that is a political action. They are trying to claim a place in that colony and shift their status. And from 17th, the 17th century through really until 1785 is my marker, but it's really, you know, through the revolutionary era, you see enslaved people using all kinds of tools to try to gain freedom to improve their condition. They, in that early period in the 17th century, they use the courts, they use their bargaining power. When the British come and set things up in the late 17th and the early 18th century, you have a different system of laws and a, a more rigid system that is established by the British. They are interested in making New York a leading slave port. They are bringing laws from Virginia, which of course has established the plantation system and the original slave codes, and those slave codes remain in place until the Civil War in terms of slave communities. And so the opportunity for freedom really disappears. And the other thing that happens in the 18th century is that you have a much larger number of people who are coming directly from Africa. And so some of the earliest, the 1712 slave revolt, for example, you have people who are coming in who are, I would say, understand slavery as a state of war. That is what it was in Africa. You were enslaved if you were a prisoner of war. And so when they come to colonial New York, they also are still, if they are in that mindset, they want to fight for freedom. And so when you have slave rebellions in North America or in the Americas generally, you're talking about people who are trying to attain status. Some people do, you know, argue or negotiate with their owners, but you also have groups that are like, we are going to go to war for this. The fact that those people begin to go to war does convince one group of Europeans, the Quakers, that slavery is a warlike activity. And you may know that the Quakers are pacifists. And over the course of the 18th century, they began to discuss and debate slavery as something that is inimical to their religion. It goes against their doctrines. Do unto others as you would have them do unto you. We are pacifists. They don't participate in wars, European wars, because of their beliefs in pacifism. So as they continue to see slavery as a warlike action, they begin to see it as a sin. So they become the first group of whites overall as a religious denomination who align with Blacks in seeing slavery as wrong. So that 
17th to 18th century, the 1700s to say 1785 is a really critical period. And of course you have the Revolutionary War right in the middle of there. And one of the important things the Revolutionary War does is highlight this language of freedom, the British colonies using this language of slavery, the American colonies, we don't want to be enslaved to Great Britain. Well, of course, Black people are going to hear this and say, well, I'm enslaved. If you're fighting for your freedom, why am I not fighting? Why are you not fighting for my freedom? And so you have a, an ideology that grows that I would say that I think that it is different from the ideology of some slave rebellions. Some slave rebellions are just about that group of people. But with this ideology that of freedom and equality, the pursuit of happiness, all of that American ideology, that I think gets more and more people to think beyond just themselves and their own condition, but to begin to see slavery, no matter who you are, as something that's wrong. And so between 1785 and 1827, that becomes the conversation in New York among both blacks and whites. Will slavery end? our deep dive into antebellum New York, specifically Manhattan. Be sure to rate, review, and subscribe to this podcast on iTunes or on your favorite podcast platform. It's super important because it helps us get the word out about this history and the work we're doing. Thank you. Thank you.